Welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team combs through the literature, looking for the best articles that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. And now you can be rewarded for your time listening or reading to the Journal Feed with CME credits. Details for that are on our website. This is the audio version of the past week's summaries, all of which this week were brought to you by the phenomenal Clay Smith. The first article was titled Anorexia Nervosa out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Shocker, given the title, but this is going to be a review of Anorexia Nervosa for you. This is an important subject to be fluent in. It's deadly and can easily go under the radar, since a typical hallmark of this disease is that the person is nonchalant about it. So if you're not attuned to warning signs, you could miss the severity of the presentation. Anorexia nervosa is a severe psychiatric illness with a mortality rate of 5.6% per year. This is a notoriously difficult to treat disease and about 50% of youths will carry it on into adulthood. The most important thing for the emergency department though is to recognize the danger signs and indications for immediate hospitalization. On history, keep your eyes and ears open for worrying weight trends, eating habits, food restriction, purging, fears of weight gain, excessive exercise, changes to menstruation, typically amenorrhea, and syncope. You're going to want to corroborate your findings on history with other people to check out all of these things and their accuracies. Also, keep on top of the possibility of suicidal ideation and depression. On exam, a BMI below 16.5 should be a cause for concern. And the trajectory of weight change is also important because the earlier we can recognize a problem, the better. As well, a BMI less than 15 is not uncommonly used as a criterion for immediate admission. Other common findings on physical exam are going to include things like orthostatic hypotension, hypothermia, and bradycardia. Also keep in mind that these patients may not have a tachycardic response to dehydration, even when severe, due to accommodation of their bodies over time. More signs are things like hair loss, the presence of lanugo, erosion of tooth enamel, or salivary gland hypertrophy to indicate purging. Self-harm is always an important flag. To help you in assessing the severity of these patients, your first tests should be some blood chemistry and an ECG. These people are missing nutrients, so of course you can see that reflected in their blood work, where you can see hypo just about everything. Hyponatremia, kalemia, chloridemia, magnesemia, phosphatemia, and even low albumin. And on ECG, look particularly for bradycardia, ectopy, and long QTs. Again, it's best to be very careful with these patients. They may not be forthcoming about their food restrictions. But some are going to need admission and refeeding. Common criteria to justify that decision are things like a BMI less than 15, syncope, bradycardia, electrolyte abnormalities, other concerning ECG findings, and of course, suicidal ideation or self-harm. So in a spoonful, anorexia nervosa is a serious disease and patients may not actively bring it to your attention, so you really have to keep an eye out. And now the second article for this week, which was titled Performance of the Modified Boston and Philadelphia Criteria for Invasive Bacterial Infections out of the Journal of Pediatrics. There are a lot of guidelines out there for really young kids and for a little older kids. The problems often arise in that kind of Goldilocks age of 29 to 60 days. 
Tools to help with this, both well-known, include the Boston and Philadelphia criteria. From the original study, only 5.4% of children with low Boston criteria scores had serious bacterial infections by culture results. The Philadelphia score also looked pretty good from initial studies, with a sensitivity of 98%. Both of these studies, however, came out in the early 1990s. So, how well are they still holding up today? This was a pre-planned secondary analysis of a retrospective cross-sectional HSV study over eight years ending in 2013, with 8,000 infants aged 29 to 60 days in order to test the diagnostic accuracy of Boston and Philadelphia criteria to detect invasive bacterial infections. For this study, both criteria were altered to include both spun and unspun urine microscopy samples. There were 264 patients at about 2.4% of the total cohort with invasive bacterial infections, 0.6% with meningitis, and 1.8% with bacteremia. Now, looking at being able to identify invasive bacterial infections, for the Boston criteria, the overall sensitivity was 64.7%, and for the Philadelphia criteria, the sensitivity was 71.7%. For serious bacterial infections, the numbers were only slightly better, with Boston at 79.4% and Philadelphia at 86.2%. So all of this together means that these criteria would have misclassified as low risk between 25 and 33% of infants with serious disease. That's not cool. It may be time for other decision aids to replace the old guard, such as Step-by-Step and PCARN. All right, in a spoonful, sensitivity for Boston and Philadelphia criteria to detect invasive bacterial infections in infants 29 to 60 days old was 62.7% and 71.7% respectively. That's pretty awful. All right, and the third article for this week was titled In Pursuit of an Opiate-Free Pediatric Ambulatory Surgery Center, a Quality Improvement Initiative, out of the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. Opioids are, of course, a major problem. Over 5% of patients may have persistent opioid use after surgery. That's more than 2 million people per year in the U.S. out of the 50 million who have surgery. So this begs the question, is it really necessary? Could we reduce the use of opioids in the perioperative period and still have excellent pain control? This was a quality improvement initiative at a single-study pediatric center to reduce opioid use. Over the course of 18 months, this initiative was highly effective, reducing the intraoperative opioids from 84% down to 8%, and the postoperative morphine use from 11% down to 6%, while pain control scores remained unchanged. On top of that, nausea decreased, and even analgesic-related costs were lower. How did they manage this magnificence, you might ask? And how does this apply to the emergency department? Instead of using opioids, they focused on dexmedetomidine, IV NSAIDs, and nerve blocks. These are all things that are accessible in the emergency department right away. And who doesn't need a little extra motivation to improve on their nerve block skills? Regardless, if surgery can go opiate-free, the emergency department probably can too. You'd have to keep in mind, though, that this was a single-center study done only in pediatric patients with minor procedures like PE tubes, tonsillectomies, or hernia repairs, which might not generalize broadly. 
RN in a spoonful from a single center study in pediatric surgery. The use of dexmedetomidine, NSAIDs, and nerve blocks was able to drastically reduce the use of opioids. The fourth article for this week was titled Continuous Albuterol with Benzalkonium in Children Hospitalized with Severe Asthma out of the Journal of Pediatrics. In my opinion, one of the underpinning inventions that has allowed civilization to form is the existence of preservatives. But as you can imagine, when you add something that's job is to never change to something that's a consumable and by nature is then prone to change, you can sometimes get some undesirable effects. Benzalkonium chloride is a preservative that's put into dropper vials of albuterol used in continuous nebulizer treatments. This agent is known to induce bronchospasm. That's right, and it's put in albuterol. I'm sure the irony isn't lost on you. So how does that affect the function of this bronchodilator that it's added to? This was a retrospective study of patients under 18 years old who received benzalkonium and those who did not. About 240 patients in either group. For the primary outcome of time on continuous nebulization, those with the preservative were treated for nine hours versus only six hours in the control group who had albuterol without benzalkonium. As a retrospective study, not all confounders could be controlled for, but the findings did hold up against statistical adjustment for any known confounders and as well with propensity score matching. In case you were curious, metered dose inhalers and single-dose ampules are preservative-free, but we certainly can't get rid of continuous nebulization. All right, all together in a spoonful, treating children with asthma using continuous nebulizer therapy showed three hours longer on treatment when the albuterol that was used contained the preservative benzalkonium compared with preservative-free solutions. Now the last article for this week titled Accuracy of PE Rule-Out Strategies in Pregnancy a secondary analysis of the DIPEP study prospective cohort out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. We are familiar with the diagnostic criteria to help in the diagnosis and risk stratification of pulmonary embolism patients. A subset of these patients are pregnant patients, and they, of course, face an increased risk. Some studies have, of course, looked into this population. The Diagnosis of PE in Pregnancy Study, or DIPEP, looked into the diagnostic utility of a number of biomarkers for the workup of PE in pregnancy, none of which was useful on its own, by the way. More recently, the Pregnancy Adjusted Years Algorithm, or PAY algorithm, was used to effectively rule out suspected PE in pregnancy. Briefly, the years criteria were applied and varying D-dimer cutoffs used based on the risk. MDCalc, by the way, has a nice calculator for this that includes the pregnant or not variable. So in the original pay algorithm study of 498 patients, just one was later diagnosed in the following three months. Now, how would the pay algorithm fare when applied in another patient population? This was a secondary retrospective analysis of the DIPEP cohort, where they found much worse diagnostic accuracy when applying the pay algorithm. The sensitivity fell to an abysmal 58.3%. This was helped a little bit using the Geneva plus D-dimer approach, but only up to 75% sensitivity. Why was this algorithm so much worse than this cohort? Well, there could be a few possibilities. DIPEP only included patients who had PE imaging orders, meaning that they had higher pretest probabilities by definition. Also, some of these patients had anticoagulation prior to getting a D-dimer, which could have falsely lowered the levels. 
and perhaps most importantly, was that DIPEP was a retrospective look at data that was initially collected for another purpose. For now, given these limitations, the Pregnancy Adapted Years study is still one of the largest and best studies guiding us for these patients. While this new study we just described is enough to give one pause, our author Clay isn't giving up on the pay algorithm just yet. In a spoonful, applying the Pregnancy Adapted Years algorithm to the DIPEP study population had it missing a significant number of pulmonary embolisms. There were, however, several limitations to the study. All right, here's a quick review, guys. What did we learn today? First, we had a review of some major points on anorexia nervosa, a tricky patient population that deserves to be kept in mind. Second, the Boston and Philadelphia criteria did not perform well in a retrospective trial of infants 29 to 60 days old. It may be time to retire these in favor of newer criteria. Third, there's a big push to reduce opioid use. This study in pediatric surgery showed that dexmedetomidine, NSAIDs, and nerve blocks could be used to effectively reduce opioid use without compromising pain control. Fourth, benzalkonium is a preservative used in albuterol solutions that are used for continuous nebulizer therapy and is unhelpfully a bronchospastic agent. This is likely having a negative impact on length of stay and even crowding since this study showed an increase in the length of treatment. Lastly, the pregnancy-adapted years criteria have some of the best evidence in guiding our evaluation of PE in pregnant patients. When we apply that algorithm in the patient population of the DIPEP study, however, its performance isn't very good. Given the limitations of the study, you may not want to abandon the pregnancy-adapted years criteria just yet, but I'll be on the lookout for its application in other populations again in the future. All right, that's it for this week, everybody. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, or if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our news feed and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're helping you to keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.